Hey, gang, this week's episode is brought to you by our pals at NordVPN, celebrating a birthday this month. Hey, get a uh, free gift and a free month when you order a two-year plan at nordvpn.com slash goodseats and use the promo code goodseats. Yes, that's nordvpn.com slash goodseats, promo code goodseats for your free month and free gift when you order a two-year plan. Now, here's our show. Yeah, Mark, good evening to you. Perhaps people are just looking for some good news right now, or they are looking for a final chapter in a story that has been going on in Seattle for now 15 plus years. But this is something that potentially would make financial sense for the city of Seattle. I've been saving this t-shirt for a really long time. Seattle's mayor has publicly discussed bringing back the Sonics, and now she's openly talking about her conversations to do it. I think it was a very positive conversation. Durkin told King 5 she spoke with NBA Commissioner Adam Silver just before Christmas. It is news that prompted a national reaction from ESPN to The Washington Post, USA Today, and beyond. A story about a city trying to right a wrong since the Sonics skipped town after a civic kerfuffle in 2008. Silver has only said that the league has dusted off its expansion discussion and that no formal process is planned. But it is a departure from a previous hard line and shows the league's owners hemorrhaging money during the pandemic are not concerned about the league being a second or third tenant in Seattle's new billion-dollar Climate Pledge Arena. In fact, Seattle, the largest market without an NBA franchise, would join the likes of Denver, Los Angeles, New York, Chicago, and Toronto to host an NBA and NHL franchise in the same building, a double dip that would have some financial incentives for Seattle in the way of parking and other concessions based on the new arena deal with the Oakview Group. Durkin says she does not want to get ahead of Silver, but she does want Seattle to be in front. It is very good news for the city of Seattle that they are thinking of an expansion team. Again, there is no formal process. Nothing has been announced by the National Basketball Association. It just does seem like the NBA has changed their course on expansion in the future. And all we have to do is look here in the past few years with what happened with the NHL and the Kraken, the National Hockey League had said they weren't interested in expansion. That changed very quickly. So we know the narrative with the NBA here in Seattle can change quickly as well. Live tonight at Climate Pledge Arena, I'm Chris Daniels, King 5 Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. All right, let's get this uh, proverbial show on the road, shall we? How are you, everybody? As announced, uh, my name is Tim Hanlon. Thank you, Corey Coates, for uh, your dulcet tones, as always, uh, in the intro. We uh, appreciate your finding uh, Good Seats Still Available, our curious little podcast journey. Uh, Each week that is devoted to what used to be in professional sports. Yeah, that's our little niche Uh, around these parts. We we obsess over and over again on on various teams and leagues and and professional events and stuff that have happened in the realm of, uh, of sports. Uh, usually in the United States, but as we've determined, not uh, always exclusively. And um, it's been two years now since uh, we last uh, discussed 
perhaps uh, one of the most uh, downloaded and listened to episodes uh, that we've done uh, was around the Seattle Sonics or the Seattle Supersonics, if you'd like to be more formal about it. The official name, uh, basketball, NBA. Yes, uh, the team that uh, left uh, the Pacific Northwest uh, hamlet. It's hardly a hamlet of Seattle in 2008. Uh, with our old pals uh, Jason Reed and Adam Brown, they the uh, producers and documentarian filmmakers of uh, Sonic's Gate. And if you haven't seen that film uh, in all, all its uh, two hour plus glory, uh, highly encourage you to uh, to view it because our guest this week, John Finkel, uh, great sports writer, Yahoo Sports and GQ, tons of other, men's health, tons of other places. Uh, has a new book out that uh, is a revisit of uh, the Seattle Sonics story. It's it's not as uh, uh, focused on sort of the uh, the drama and the turmoil of the ugly and messy departure, uh, which we got into in our our previous episode uh, with uh, Jason and Adam. It's a, by the way, it's episode number one hundred six. If you're uh, searching it up or you want to download it and listen to that one uh, as preparation or perhaps an, afterwards of, uh, from this episode. Uh, but yeah, you know, the whole story of, of uh, uh, the, uh, the the sordid story of, of going to Oklahoma City and who the various, uh, uh, you know, evildoers in that story might have been. Was it Clay Bennett uh, of the Oklahoma City uh, ownership group? Was it David Stern, the NBA commissioner at the time, uh, who was perhaps in cahoots? Was it Howard Schultz, either by uh, design or by naivete or some combination of the two? Uh, the debate kind of still rages about sort of why and how and who's to blame for the Sonics' departure uh, in uh, 2008. But uh, John Finkel is here uh, to talk about his new book. It's called Hoops Heist, Seattle, the Sonics and How a Stolen Team's Legacy Gave Rise to the NBA's Secret Empire. Um, it is, um, it's a very interesting uh, read, and it's put together kind of in a two-part fashion. Uh, first is basically a uh, well-chronicled history of the team. Yeah, it gets in obviously to the departure, of course, but it gets into literally uh, the origins of the team way back in 1967, back when Seattle didn't have any professional sports franchise. This was even two years prior to uh, the uh, one-year madcap adventure of the Seattle Pilots, another topic that we've discussed uh, at length on a couple of other episodes. But no, 1967, the Seattle Supersonics, uh, the NBA was taking a chance on the Pacific Northwest and Seattle in particular. Uh, Lenny Wilkins and, and the story of Slick Watts and downtown Freddie Brown, Jack Sigma, um, you know, and then, you know, in the 90s, uh, people like Gary Payton and Sean Kemp and Ray Allen and, and the single season of Kevin Durant. I mean, you know, there's a lot of stuff and a lot of history of this team. And John goes into that, which is a great primer for the second part of the book, which is uniquely a uh, a, 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 a an underlying, uh, uh, I guess, legacy of this team that is that can be seen throughout today's NBA. Uh, people uh, like various Hall of Famers and, and key players like Jamal Crawford and Nate Robinson, uh, Brandon Roy, Doug Christie. Uh, Jason Terry, um, Isaiah Thomas, uh, not the previous Isaiah Thomas of Detroit Pistons family. I'm talking about the current uh, Washington Wizards uh, star extraordinaire. Um, and it's Isaiah Thomas. It's an interesting sort of turning point in the story because the uh, the book Hoops Heist uh, is published by 
uh, Isaiah Thomas's uh, media publishing brand called Slow Grind Media. It's part of the, uh, I guess you call it the Isaiah Thomas budding uh, uh, entrepreneurial empire. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's beyond his uh, playing days and he's thinking about what's going to be happening afterwards. But this is a story, that second half of Hoops Heist that John Finkel put together uh, is forwarded by Isaiah Thomas, and rightly so, uh, because he, he, there's all kinds of interviews in this book with all of those players and then some who hail from Seattle or the, or the area and literally grew up in the shadows or as fans of or both of the Seattle Sonics. And the legacy uh, of these players was absolutely uh, uh, rooted uh, in their fandom as kids growing up and and, and emulating their stars uh, back in the day when the Sonics were uh, running around town uh, through 2008. And it's newly relevant, we think, uh, as that clip at the top of the show uh, kind of indicates uh, that clip came from, it was last month, January of this, uh, of this year, 2021. That's reporter Chris Daniels of King 5 News in Seattle, a Tegna station at last to check. Uh, and that uh, clip basically tells you the the story of how perhaps Seattle may wind up getting an NBA franchise again. And I think it's in everybody's uh, assumptions and calculations that uh, whether that's an expansion franchise, which I think is where the NBA is kind of thinking right now, because COVID certainly has decimated the last season and maybe even this season. Uh, Revenue-wise, and, and perhaps one of the easier ways to bring in some bucks relatively quickly is a an expansion franchise. And frankly, I think you know Seattle not only being first in line and owed a franchise for sure. It was part of the messy divorce process, and uh, and Seattle would love uh, to not only get a franchise, but it makes a ton of sense when you hear the stories uh, that John has sort of put together of the current NBA roster of Seattle natives. Uh, that it just makes perfect sense to sort of bring this back onto uh, the NBA um, stage and being back in in Seattle. I think it's in everybody's calculus that it should be, without question, if it is a new franchise, be called the Sonics and pick up literally where the history left off. Lord knows the Kansas, the, uh, Kansas City, the Oklahoma City Thunder uh, really uh, – Yes, on paper, that's where the stats live. But, you know, should they? Uh, I don't think any sane sort of fan of the NBA uh, would agree that it should. Um, but, uh, you know, and I think, frankly, most Seattle fans would prefer not to have a relocated franchise for that matter, right? Because they, they don't want to necessarily do to that city what Oklahoma City wound up doing to their beloved Sonics franchise the first time. Uh, but uh, it, it's let's put it this way. It's on the table. Uh, it is uh, newly chatted about and uh, seemingly now in the realm of possibility uh, in today's day and age. And the uh, arrival of the Seattle Kraken, uh, we think this fall is when they're supposed to debut in the NHL. Uh, and the complete refurbishment uh, from right down to the studs uh, of what used to be known as Key Arena. Uh, it now essentially uh, is, uh, you know, potentially another uh, uh, aspect of the story where, uh, bringing in an NBA franchise into that location, uh, makes a, uh, uh, perhaps more a ton of sense. So we're going to get into this conversation, this sort of reheat of our, of our discussion about the Seattle Sonics, the Seattle supersonics, everyone will remember them, 
a little bit about the history, certainly the legacy as it, as it lives on now in the NBA, and some uh, some prognostication perhaps of uh, hopefully uh, in Seattle's case the return of the Sonics or at least an NBA franchise. We get into all that stuff. It's a great opportunity to do that with our conversation with John coming up in a moment's time. Uh, it's fun times. Let's hope that this uh, in, indeed occurs. And uh, let's uh, get going uh, into that conversation in a moment. Uh, let's remember, though, uh, the Sonics and Seattle proper, shall we, uh, with our uh, our sponsor this week, OldSchoolShirts.com. Promo code GOODSEATS for 10% off all of your purchases when you go there early and often and buy. Buy, buy, buy. Uh, all kinds of great stuff. And, you know, as you know, Old School Shirts is not just about commemorating old school sports stuff. But it's also commemorating a whole bunch of old school uh, pop culture stuff. And like you can do with just about any city or any region on OldSchoolShirts.com, just go to the Seattle tab. Just go into cities and then click on Seattle and uh, you'll find a whole bunch of shirts uh, devoted to great memories uh, in Seattle's cultural past, like the Sunset Bowl. Uh, or the uh, the off ramp cafe, the, the commemorated T shirt from form. There's a great Seattle World's Fair 1962, uh, beautiful uh, T shirt there. Um, perhaps you remember buying or selling or trading uh, various records or other media at Cellophane Square. Uh, there's a shirt there devoted to them. Do you remember the the old coffee uh, house known as uh, Last Exit on Brooklyn? Uh, one of the sort of the uh, uh, premier uh, uh, coffee shops that sort of popped up in, you know, in the late 60s uh, in Seattle and was uh, known uh, around the region. Um, uh, th- that is commemorated in T-shirt form. How about the Kingdom, where the, C- uh, the Seattle Sonics played for a bunch of years, drawing some of the largest crowds in NBA uh, history as uh, well as uh, those seasons that they played there? That's also memorialized and a ton of other stuff. How about the Seattle Sea Dogs of the CISL? There you go. Uh, 1997 CISL champions they were. Uh, yours truly actually at the key arena uh, for some playoff games that year, if you if you can believe that. Uh, all kinds of great stuff commemorated in, in T-shirt form, high quality, of course, at OldSchoolShirts.com. Remember, don't forget to use that promo code GOODSEATS and get 10% off all of your purchases uh, for all the stuff that you find from uh, all those great Seattle memories, any of the other cities that are commemorated there or sports teams, whatever, a whole treasure trove awaiting for you there uh, at OldSchoolShirts.com. Thank you to P.F. Wilson and his friends uh, and uh, for the sponsorship of the show, of course. And uh, thank you for continuing to listen. Here we go. Here's our our conversation with our pal, John Finkel. Let's get into Sonic's Hoops, shall we? Uh, As always, please enjoy. I'm curious as to how you sort of professionally came into this Sonic story. You're not a Seattle guy by any by any stretch, I don't think. No, no. I uh, I grew up in Boston and then... um... You know, like I said, high school in Virginia, in uh, in, in New Hampshire, in uh, New Jersey, then you know, college in Virginia, and then I moved out to LA. So no, I'd never spent any time in the, the PNW, the Pacific Northwest, as, as they call it. And um, professionally, I came about it through you know work. I was doing a column, kind of like a George Plimpton-esque column for Yahoo Sports' uh, the post game. It was their kind of answer to Grantland for a while, and I used to like 
just basically try to do different things. I'd take on tasks. I was a, a bull rider. I was a pit boss. I, you know, I did all that kind of stuff. And one of the things was trying to dunk and learn how to do that. And I actually contacted Nate Robinson for that story. Um, and we, we got along about, you know, his, his jumping workout, his kind of, it's kind of like, it was like a mini just kind of feature on him and his, his vertical leap and his history of dunking and things like that. And, and we got along really well. So after that story ran, we just kind of stayed in touch as, as I'm sure, you know, kind of happens with some stories. You just click with certain dudes. And, um, it happened to be that year, I believe it was 2012 when he, there was like a brief three week period of time where he kind of took over playoff basketball when he was with the bulls. He, he, he beat the, uh, the old Brooklyn, the, the first version of the Brooklyn Nets. Um, then the next round he had like that double overtime game beat LeBron a few different games. And he was like, he was player of the week. It was, it was awesome. And so I contacted him after that and said, you know, have you thought of doing a, a book? His, his story is an unbelievable story. Not only his, his height, but also where he came from. And he was Mr. Basketball and Mr. Football in, you know, in Washington as a five, eight, you know, high school player. And um, anyway, we did his book and I spent about a week and a half or so up there doing that. And I met a couple other people up there. While I was up there, I learned you know, how many athletes were from that area, but not only that, how, how, how much they revered the Sonics. Like it was just crazy. They all grew up diehard fans of this team and it was him and, and Jason Terry and Jamal Crawford. And at the time, um, Isaiah Thomas was still at, at Washington or about to be, uh, leave Washington and all those guys and Doug Christie. And so that just kind of was in my head. And then um, I met a guy who was doing a documentary, small short documentary series on Nate, uh, this guy, TJ Regan, who's a producer and now partnered with Isaiah Thomas on his Slow Grind Media. And he and I had always stayed in touch about doing a story uh, or a book together or some big project. And um, when Isaiah was open to you know starting up the production end of his company, he reached out and we had a couple conversations about what would be like a big splash. And I was like, you know, it's just sitting there, but no one's done the definitive book on Seattle, the Sonics and, and the team and the legacy that they left and the NBA players that they left. And that's kind of the, the quick version of how it came about. So so this is your angle for this is less sort of about sort of the uh, the the intricacies and the legal battles and the, you know, who's to blame and all that kind of stuff. And, and we got into that for the and this is a whole bunch of, you know, that that's still argued about still to this day. And, and if a franchise winds up coming back to Seattle, which will We'll get to maybe near the end of our, our chat because I'd love to hear your opinions about you think it's viability. But this almost feels to me like you've sort of got sucked in, I guess, to the uh, the basketball meets Seattle kind of, shall we call it, love affair, frankly. Because I, I actually have lived in Seattle. I worked uh, in, in, a, in a startup for a couple of years, a Paul Allen company at the time, by the way, when he was open, uh, when he owned the um, uh, the Trailblazers. And uh, this was also during the time when the Sonics and the Bulls were going at it for – uh, the NBA championship. So, we're, um, but it, it was a question unquestionably, uh, and I'm an East Coast guy, but I, I you could feel a real palpable basketball culture in Seattle, and I, I'm not just saying it was because the Sonics were, you know, th that close to winning the the, the the world title, but it just right. there there is a real solid uh, a basis of of basketball heritage and and culture there that. Um, I think when the Sonics left, and maybe this is the beginnings of your story here, um, just kind of got ripped away, and, yeah. and and frankly, is a void that still really hasn't been filled yet uh, since. Well, that's what was originally attracted to me about it. It was the, the, the what we kind of call loosely like the Seattle basketball brotherhood, even though now, obviously, uh, with the storm, kind of a sisterhood too. But like 
the guys who grew up playing it, there's a real sense of passing it on and sharing it. So, you know, Jamal Crawford grew up going to Doug Christie's camps, right? And like learning from those guys. He went to all the, uh, in all the games, you know, the Sonics games. And, you know, was, it, it was really weird for like the, you can draw a direct through line from, you know, Xavier McDaniel used to do these things where the, if you, if these kids did, you know, got good grades to their church, they would get a, you know, picked up by a player and taken to a game. And one of those players happened to be Doug Christie. And then Doug Christie starts a camp and, you know, at his camp, guys like Jason Terry and Jamal Crawford are going to his camp and Brandon Roy are going there. And then those guys go out and make the NBA come back. And then Isaiah Thomas and Nate are, you know, going to the, coming back and going to their camps. And so it became this kind of self-fulfilling a prophecy of like the players who come there are, are expected to give back to the community or from there expected to give back to the community and they do and they love to do it and they're they're all connected through basketball and through the sonics and then when the team left it's like there's no actual sonics team but all the players from the guys i just mentioned are sort of the de facto pro team in the town right now in the city you know if jamal crawford has a camp you know that Isaiah is going to be there and Nate's going to be there and Doug Christie, whoever's in town is going to be there or Gary Payton might fly in to go to it. These guys have each other's back. And for me, that was just such a cool angle. The the, the last part of the tagline of the book is kind of gave rise to the, how, how the stolen team's legacy gave rise to the NBA's secret empire. And that wasn't just kind of some kind of, you know, trumped up line that we came up with to try to, you know, hook people into the book. It's true. People have no idea how many players are actually from that area impact players and then what they're doing to give back so that that brotherhood that they have there and then obviously the storm doing awesome uh, helps as well but man it is it's really cool to see and, and to a man you know from doug christie all the way to kevin durant who had his one year there interviewing all of them they all say the same thing having played on you know collectively almost every team in the nba you know the phrase that they kept saying over and over which is just it's just different in seattle it's a different feel yeah, so not being a native yourself, right? So as objective, I guess, as you can be, right? Because that's probably the best from a story perspective. How do you, how do you, how did, what's your interpretation of Seattle, uh, the city, the region, and the basketball overlay to it? Because um, you're coming to this after the team has left. And I was there during the heyday, I get, well, one of the heydays in the 90s. Um, but you didn't have that sort of luxury, right? That you're talking about no. a lot of yeah. No, I grew up in Boston. I'm a, I'm a diehard Celtics fan, so I'm well. You know, when I was in, grew up enough time in Boston as a kid, like to know what a city feels like. Of course, I was there. My age was like the exact age after they fell off. Like my big moment, sadly, was like Reggie Lewis passing away. Like I wasn't there for all the bad ML car years where he was drafting nobody, and like we were not. When I lived there, we, they, the Celtics were not very good. I think bird retired like the year we moved there so um but uh so i'm aware of what a, you know what a city how a city can be attached to a team obviously and i'm a general diehard you know basketball fan anyway so the sonics even being on the east coast were were kind of a, a like a real mysterious cool you know emerald city out in the corner you know northwest corner of the country um but i tackled it like you'd said really early on objectively of the reader will not know anything if they're going to, you know, the readers from Seattle will, will obviously have a better understanding of the story, but I went all the way back and I wanted to really do like the definitive full telling of Seattle basketball. And really because the Sonics were the first professional sports team there, um, I went all the way back to Seattle and what Seattle was like prior to any sports teams and, and what they were known for, which was basically nothing. Um, Boeing was kind of the only thing in town and as Boeing went, so did the town. Um, they had no sports teams. It wasn't until uh, they got the World's Fair 
uh, in the late 60s that it even became a viable place because they did at that point they had they didn't have, you know now they had the key arena but they had nothing they built it for that um, the Space Needle also built for the World's Fair which became obviously a part of the Sonics and, um, and and that was really where the idea of being able to support a professional team came from so I went all the way back to before they had anything uh, all the way to when um, you know, the guys were pitching, you know, this guy Dick Burleib and Don Richmond were actually pitching the NBA to get a team to Seattle. Their first choice at that point was actually Cleveland, and they the NBA time passed on Cleveland, so they went with Seattle. Um, so that was really where I started. I went back, as they say, all the way to the beginning. Yeah, and I think that's lost on on certainly a generation or two of, 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 of Hoops fans that uh, even those who do remember the Sonics, right? I mean, you're talking Seattle was probably the um, – uh, the biggest West Coast market, devoid of a top four or big four uh, professional sports franchise. Now, you know, th- there were the pilots in 69 for that one year, uh, let's call it misadventure uh, in Major League Baseball, which we've talked about in a number of different episodes, but that did sow the seeds for for later arrival of the Mariners. But, you know, circa 66, 67, um, Seattle was kind of this truly fertile and emerald green uh, uh, you know, field, if you will, of opportunity. And I'm just, you know, this is also around the time too, where the ABA was kind of getting going too. So there was this, this sort of itch, I guess, from a lot, all pro sports, but the but basketball in particular, that there were some fertile fields to be, uh, to be mined out there. Yeah. There were a couple of factors going into it. That one of the big ones was that the NBA at that point had not expanded to a city that didn't already have either baseball or football. So that was kind of a big thing. Um, the two guys who I mentioned who were pitching the team, both went to uh, USC. One of them had, uh, you know, played a little freshman basketball. So they remembered traveling up back and forth playing, you know, playing Washington uh, in college sports. And they saw how people came out for that. So they kind of used that as a kind of a guidepost of what it could be. But you're absolutely right. The, the, the ABA was, nobody knew what was going to happen if they were going to be, you know, absorbed or if they were going to be taken over, if they were going to be bought out. Nobody knew how that was going to work out. And then Seattle was just sitting there. The NBA wanted to expand. But the, the, the funnier things that I found, you know, when you do these books, you, know, you find these stories where like, you know, these guys on the East Coast, especially back in the early, you know, late 60s, early 70s, when they were putting those first couple teams together, you know, there were guys in the East Coast that never left the East Coast ever. The idea of Seattle, you know, there's several, there's several instances in the research where, you know, the guy was told they were drafted by Washington and they thought, awesome, I just, you know, train ride down from New York to D.C. And they're like, no, no, not that Washington, like seattle washington and people were like where the hell is that like it was the country was different it was much larger without the internet to be able to look everything up and and there was a lot less travel uh from a lot of the you know there was a regional draft for east coast players and things like that so the very idea for some of these guys of going there it was just like almost like a not a foreign country but just a foreign part of the you know the united states and so when they finally set it up to do it for some of these guys it was brand new and then for a couple of the guys they had that were you know in the UCLA or played on the West coast, it, it was, it was more of second nature, but yeah, it was a city ripe for something. And then of course, you know, it's never as romantic as it seems. The first year wasn't great. The second year wasn't great. You know, that kind of stuff. Well, I mean, I guess the general question is why, why basketball versus any other sport and, and why that period of time, um, uh, you know, uh, I think probably the, the, uh, uh, elitist or uh shall we say traditionalist east coast establishment probably would have looked at uh this uh 
this Seattle region as being maybe not necessarily immediately hip to the to the hoops game. Um, I, I don't. I'm just curious as to like what you learned is sort of like what the dynamic was, say versus. I would make the argument maybe hockey. Now the the Kraken obviously have have proven there has been a long history in the Western Hockey League and all that kind of stuff, which was itself a fairly decent competitor to that of the NHL, which itself had only had six teams until 1967, right? So uh, I'm just curious as to why hoops, say maybe versus hockey or something else. Well, it it really comes down to the fact that the NBA wasn't the impetus for it happening, right? It wasn't as if the NBA was out there looking for cities to expand in actively and then had a list that they put together and did it that way. In this case, um, you know, Richmond and, and Dick Vertlieb, they they were both they were both were bored with their jobs basically one of them you know worked for Merrill Lynch and he was just bored and the other one uh, was a PR guy who worked for you know Al Davis he helped name the Minneapolis Lakers uh, when they came over to Los Angeles he helped uh, he helped name the Chargers like when they bought those teams so he was into PR and all those kind of things um, but they both wanted to get into into basketball they wanted to run a basketball team so it's kind of like it was reverse engineered. I'm sure somewhere the NBA um, had a list of places, you know, with, uh, you know, Commissioner Kennedy had a list of places they might want to go to. But at that point in time, it was very much the fact that they were pitching the NBA on why Seattle was great. Um, they did months and months and months of research trips to all these different cities. And like I said, they, their research pointed out Cleveland to be the best for a variety of reasons, the demographics, the, you know, the growing income in the city, the families, you know, the infrastructure in the city to be able to handle a team all that kind of stuff. And then they, they, you know, that fell through. So then they went with Seattle and after, you know, years of pitching, they, they sold their case, they found their money man. And for three and a half million dollars, they were, you know, awarded a franchise basically. So the reason Seattle is because those two guys wanted a team and they pitched the NBA. I don't know when it would have happened at some point. You'd think um, the NBA would have actively looked to have a team in Seattle, but in this particular case, it was because the two guys heading up, uh, the you know the dream of having the, running their own NBA team chose Seattle, and you're mentioning sort of a rocky start, right? Well, both on the on the court, but how were they at least received by the fans, being this the first major pro team to come to this area? Yeah, not great originally, as you'd expect for most expansion teams. You know, they, it's not like they sold out; it was three, four, five thousand a night. You know, people had to get used to it. The team wasn't good; they didn't have any you know, hometown stars that their best player is probably Walt Hazard, who, who was a UC, a big UCLA star and they picked up in the expansion draft. And so, you know, Al Bianchi was their coach, a guy none of them had heard of from, you know, Syracuse and the East coast. Uh, but they, you know, they rolled out a red carpet. They had some, some, some big names come in there, but it really, um, it wasn't for a few years until, uh, you know, really a little bit after Bill Russell, which we can get into, but they, they were okay. You know, they flirted with 500 a little underneath a few years. I remember the, the big joke about that first year was that the entire roster didn't add up to Wilt Chamberlain's salary, right? So they were truly just a scrappy, you know, scrap a team put together from other parts of other teams in an expansion draft. Well, and Lenny Wilkins was certainly an interesting revelation early in, early in, in the, from the get-go, right? And and then you had, you know, Bill Russell coming in as, as coach uh, in the early, well, almost a couple of years into the 70s. Um, they really did, though, kind of become quite the sensation and, and really kind of made their mark uh, in the mid-70s. I, I, I just I also think, too, this is a time when 
you know, the NBA and national television. Well, the NBA was always been had always enjoyed a pretty decent coverage on national telecasts. But as you sort of hinted at, a lot of the, you know, classic franchises, right, were East Coast and Midwestern based, right? So when you start introducing more teams onto the West Coast, in particular Seattle, um, you're talking about, and then the entry of Portland too, uh, West Coast start times that don't neatly favor. And look, I think this is even around the time when, say, CBS in the 70s had these games, right? And they were, you know, that finals games were actually taped delayed at 1130 yeah. in the, at night in the, on the East Coast, even if that was... You know, not even live on the West Coast. So I, I, I got to think that they're being somewhat out of the, shall we say, uh, media time zone mainstream might have not helped their case. Yeah, for sure. And, and that was why, you know, Sam, what they did was, you know, Sam Shulman became the face of the of the franchise from an ownership perspective. And he was a big time Hollywood guy. So he understood making a splash. And after the first couple of years, a couple of coaches not really succeeding, he had his eyes set for years on on Bill Russell. And obviously Bill Russell legendary Celtics, you know, coach and player towards the end, uh, won, won a championship, you know, basically left Boston for a variety of, of, of social reasons. Uh, he had enough of being there. His body was breaking down and all that. And he took a few years off and did, you know, commentary. And then Sam Shulman just kept calling him and calling him and calling him. And his, Shulman's biggest fear was that Russell would eventually coach with someone else. And everybody knew that Russell at some point was going to get back into coaching. Just nobody knew where. Couple times Russell hinted at being offered jobs, but maybe they were jobs his friends already had. So like Casey Jones was coaching somewhere, he wasn't going to replace him, and that kind of stuff. And so he finally got basically a, a godfather off from Shulman in the sense that Shulman was basically like, "What do I have to do to get you into this, you know, job like a used car salesman?" And I guess the the, the anecdote is that Bill Russell kind of threw out like a salary he never thought Shulman would take, and a bunch of demands he never thought Shulman would meet. You know, private his own you know luxury car into every city you know, a salary, 500000 a year that no one had as a coach yet. And he just said, fine, we want, you know, he wanted to make a splash with, with Bill Russell. And it did that. I mean, it was he was the biggest star in basketball now coaching the Sonics. And, you know, he, he was basically a 500 coach. He had one, you know, made the playoffs, and but it was, you know, barely made the playoffs. He he had a very love-hate relationship, mostly hate-hate uh, with his players. It was an interesting thing to learn having grown up in Boston and especially now with the revered figure that Russell is rightly so for a variety of basketball and, you know, and social reasons. Um, but for, for the time when he coached, man, his players did not like him. He was a tough, tough guy, kind of a jerk at times, frankly. And, and all the guys interviewed, you know, when you dig through the archives basically said so um, he was kind of like abrasive and had a huge ego and didn't like when some of the younger guys got, you know, the publicity they got, but uh, you're right. Once he left, then um, his cousin took over for a brief amount of time. And then that was the next year, 1978, when Lenny Wilkins took over as a coach. And they went like, I can't remember the exact numbers now, but 21 straight wins or whatever it was. and went all the way to the finals and lost to the Bulls. And the next year, 79, they broke through and won. Well, as you're, as you're doing this story and as you're sort of listening to uh, the memories, I guess, of, of, of the players today, current generation, that were influenced by this team, um, are there, are there names that sort of more regularly pop up either players, uh, coaches, or just other figures related to their memories that, 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 that influence them? Well, my favorite player that I came across, and this happens every, every time you kind of write a book like this, where you just, you, I, I, I always 
kind of switch and sometimes call them characters because they, they become characters even though they were real people with real quotes and even though I, you know, I interviewed them and all that. But, but my favorite sort of character in, in the book um, by far is, is, is Slick Watts, right? And people who are listening don't know Slick Watts was a, you know, I, you know, didn't get drafted, um, needed a favor to get to camp for Bill Russell for the, uh, for that, it was Russell's rookie year, shows up, um, is basically told no rookies, you know, nobody undrafted is making the team, he ends up making the team, uh, is told he's never going to play, never going to play, finally starts to play, becomes like the most popular man in Seattle, easily like the toast of the town for about two or three years. He had a, a, a bubbly personality, always smiling. Uh, he was like the first guy in the NBA to wear a headband, uh, shaved head. That was where the slick came from. He used to have this great story where if he was shooting to the left, he would cock the headband to the right. And if he was shooting to the right, missing a little bit, he would cock it to the left, even out his shot. And the coolest thing about this is slick Watts after he retired, uh, became basketball coach and a gym teacher at like a local school. And, um, one of the guys who went to his school and he worked with all the time turned out to be Jason Terry and Jason Terry because Slick was like his idol growing up and then he got to go, you know, be in school with him as his, as his teacher. He's like walked in and was like, oh, my God, that's Slick Watts. He started wearing a headband. So the reason Jason Terry wears a headband is because of Slick Watts. And then even make it a cooler through line is um, Jason Terry was obviously an incredible basketball player. And his younger brother uh, played with a guy uh, who uh, we all, all now know, Isaiah Thomas. And Isaiah Thomas looked up to Jason Terry. So he wore the headband. So it, it's these little cool through lines where like, you know, Slick Watts becomes super popular in the mid seventies, you know, for his look and his style and his smile and his headband. Terry takes it from him. And now right now, you know, you got Isaiah Thomas wearing a headband because of a guy who wore one, you know, 50 years ago. Um, and how did Russell, uh, Russell brought Watts in, right? Was there, was there a relationship somehow? Was he a cousin or something? No, it was, uh, it was his, I, I'm, I'm blanking on his name. Bill Russell's cousin was, was his, after Bill Russell got fired. Um, I, I, I don't remember. There's so many Bob names. Hopkins. Bob Hopkins. Yes. Yeah, yeah, Bob Hopkins yeah, was his cousin. And, um, he, uh, he basically took over and then, uh, that was when the team kind of, kind of took off. But, uh, yeah, Bill Russ Hopkins was was the coach for for Slick. Made a phone call on his behalf, telling him you got to look at this guy. There's a great quote where he was like, you know, are you any good? And he was like, I'm as good as I need to be. You just got to watch me. A lot of trash talking going on. Kind of got himself into camp because he wasn't drafted. I guess he was supposed to have be drafted, but he was small, so no one took him. And then he just worked his way on there. And he was like, um, you know, he had the key to the city twice. Like when they finally opened up the key arena, like he was the one. Uh, who was voted to go there. He had a move because two fans found his house and would, you know, hound him. I mean, he was a bona fide superstar for, uh, for Seattle. He led the league in assists, I think one year and, you know, never made, he never an all-star, one of those local hero guys, but uh, you know, one of those total, total fan favorite type guys. Well, and I, ironically Hopkins wound up replacing Bill Russell when he left and for a brief span of time before Lenny Wilkins then came back to be a coach. Yeah, that was, yeah, that was a, you know, one of those moves where you try to replace like good, you know, bad cop with good cop. And he, he was too good of a cop and the team just ran all over him. And then uh, literally as soon as they replaced Lenny Wilkins, he just won and won and won. So, I mean, what is it about the team then that, that you sort of keep, you kept hearing? Was it sort of the style of play? Was it the culture? Was it the, the outsider status? Because Seattle was still relatively, new and uncharted territory to the big, bad East coast and Midwest. I mean, or, or is it individual as these players that are, that, that, that remember and internalize this team themselves? Yeah. I, I think it's the, there's a cool factor from, 
there's a, there's a mysterious cool factor of people from the East Coast about Seattle. But, but from your, your question about, you know, what is it about the, the team there? I think that it's a, it's a pure blend of how it was that, you know, the arena opened up right into the city, um, especially through the 80s and 90s when the, when the grunge culture was taking off. You know, Sean Kemp became like a favorite of the Pearl Jam. They hung out these guys. People saw, you know, they used all the local musician songs at the games. There was a real embracing of the team. I mean, Gary Payton tells stories where when they'd be coming home from road games, moms, you know, Seattle moms would be out there with cookies and dinner waiting for them, um, you know, when they landed or to give them cookies after games. It, it felt like a family and they were – the thing that Bill Russell did, despite you know, some of his difficulties uh, getting along with his players, but his lasting legacy there was that he wanted the team to be a huge part of the community. So he started a tradition that very few teams still continue with, but he would do revolving practices where you know, it wasn't like once or twice a week, but pretty regularly, several times a month, the team would go practice at a local high school. And the high school kids, anybody who was in high school could come watch them play. They would give a talk afterwards. And he wanted the team to be accessible and part of the community. He didn't want them to be, you know, other, you know, kind of these big-time basketball players. And all the players did that all the way through. And when you talk to, like I said, Doug Christie went to these games. Jamal Crawford worked at Key Arena, sold popcorn. You know what I mean? Like he was one of those guys around there. Uh, And the camps that they had, Gary Payton tells a great story of like he kind of as, as Gary Payton would do when I talked to him, took a dig at Michael Jordan. But he was like, you know, if you went to a Michael Jordan camp in Chicago, after the end of maybe a Thursday to Sunday camp, you know, MJ might show up three o'clock on Sunday, talk for 15 minutes, you know, play horse with a kid and see you later. If you went to a Gary Payton camp Thursday to Sunday, I was there before the camp opened and I was there after it closed, being there, talking to anybody. I was giving out my phone number to everybody. If you had a high school game coming up, I would show up. And all those guys did that. So, you know, Isaiah Thomas tells stories where he'd come to a game and Jamal Crawford and Gary Payton and Nate Robertson would be in the stands because they were at a camp with him and they heard about him. And it was that kind of stuff just doesn't happen in other cities. Yeah, you're also hinting at, at uh, I think, one of the uh, other unique factors of this team, and that's um, the arena that they largely played in. Now, that they did, there was a span there from 78 to 85 when they were in the kingdom and led the league. And just gigantic crowds. Now, I, you know, I I can't imagine having been in the Kingdom for a base couple of baseball games in my past, back in the day. Uh, I can't imagine how great a sightline uh, some of the cheap seats were for those games. But in terms of uh, being in an event and and being you know a large crowd and all that kind of stuff. But the Key Arena, right? Um, very central, I think, to the story because um, uh, having lived there uh, in Seattle in the in the late '90s for a few of the Sonics kind of. Uh, uh, almost halcyon years, um, little indoor soccer, if I remember correctly, the Seattle Sea Dogs, if, uh, if anybody remembers those. Um, but it's, it's, uh, um, it wasn't the largest facility in the NBA. Let's put it that way. And that, that's crucial to the sort of the denouement of the story uh, in, a, in a couple of minutes, but, um, but it, it was, it was cozy, but, but also I, there was sort of a, a, a kind of a comfort to it. Uh, it was, it was unique in that it wasn't, you know, the biggest in the, in the league. And it was, it almost felt like it was a bit more intimate, but maybe I'm just projecting there. No, you're right. The players all said that it was, it was, um, it felt like a college crowd for, for the guys who, you know, had played at a, at a school that was a big basketball school. It did feel intimate. It felt like after the game was over, all the people stayed around the stadium to hang out. There was a great you know, kind of nightlife afterwards, you know, all the players said like it becomes, 
in you know a, a secret in the NBA when they had the Sonics there was that it was you know one of the favorite places for players to travel. It was you know even with the rain and all that, but it was it was a beautiful place to be. The food was good, the atmosphere was good. So yeah, the key arena was big, especially those '90s teams. Um, you know, George Carl said for sure it was still his favorite time as a coach was the you know those those the, those seven years that he was there. And a lot of the players when they showed up, when I asked about what it was that was special, they they mentioned the arena, the the, the sound, the electricity that was there. And of course, you know when you, when you're talking about that stuff, you have to get fortunate with certain personalities and certain players. And you know, for a little while it was X Man, um, but then you you really had for those '90s teams where they kind of became the other iconic team of the, of the era with, with Kemp and Peyton. I think that the lore of those two guys in the city, they both, you know, Peyton lives in Nevada now, but Sean Kemp's always there. They're both have embraced their time in Seattle. They've embraced the fans. They've kind of become ambassadors for bringing the team back at some point in time. And, uh, and even Kevin Durant talking about his last year there, you know, he, you almost feel, you know, I was expecting him to, you know, not so much that he'd have any bitterness about it because he didn't have any of that at all, but it was this, he had that connection. He's like, I was the face of the team, even though we were leaving and the fans still loved me. It was the owner that they clearly were able to separate from. So there was a nuance there as well. All right, what's this? NordVPN. Ah, welcome back, NordVPN, and happy birthday to you while we're at it. Uh, it is uh, absolutely essential these days uh, as you're traveling, whether it's down the street, uh, down the road, or maybe even across the globe, uh, if and when that occurs again. Wherever you're traveling and uh, you have laptop or mobile device in hand, uh, it is absolutely crucial uh, that you have the protection that a virtual private network affords you so that you can ensure that when you're logging in and checking your email or whatever at a Starbucks or in a hotel lobby or hell, your friend's house or wherever, uh, that your data is not stolen or compromised. And it is easy to do these days. Uh, and the benefits of a VPN are numerous for sure. And NordVPN is absolutely, uh, without question in my mind, uh, the best virtual private network offering that's out there. Uh, and uh, to celebrate NordVPN's birthday, uh, they and we have a special offer for you. You order a two-year plan from NordVPN uh, at nordvpn.com slash goodseats and using the promo code goodseats, you're going to get a free extra month just for doing so, as well as a free gift. Now, I don't know what that free gift is. I'm assuming it's going to be good. Uh, and I will tell you that the service that NordVPN offers is absolutely tremendous. They've got Super fast servers. I think over 5,000 of them now in nearly 60 countries. You want to access your Netflix and favorite entertainment websites uh, from abroad or uh, elsewhere uh, with uh, the protection to make sure that your user information is not stolen. VPNs are going to help and NordVPN is the best way to do it. There's a 30-day money-back guarantee. Uh, if you're traveling in an airport or a coffee shop, uh, it's tremendous protection. Uh, it is uh, probably the fastest connection that I've seen of any of the, uh, uh, the the VPNs that are out there. And I will tell you, I, it is basically flawless. They've got servers uh, in Europe, in Africa, in South America, in Canada, all over the place, 24 seven customer support. Uh, you can uh, load up uh, to six simultaneous connections uh, and it's double data encrypted for increased anonymity. And it works on all the platforms, whether it's Windows, Mac OS, Linux, 
uh, iOS, Android, you name it. Uh, it's got just about everything you would ever want and then some uh, in the realm of a virtual private network. That's NordVPN. And again, make sure you uh, use our promo code when you go to nordvpn.com slash goodseats and use the promo code goodseats and you will get for their birthday greetings a free month of service when you order a two-year plan and a free birthday gift. Again, nordvpn.com slash goodseats, promo code goodseats. Thank you to NordVPN and happiest and healthiest of birthdays to you. And now back to our show. Well, let's talk about the ownership because there were sort of three distinct sort of uh, uh, periods there. And and, and I, I don't know if the history and the um, uh, the passion and the, and the through lines that you're mentioning sort of neatly stack up with these three sort of eras. But, um, you know, Shulman was the guy who brought the team to town and, and was there behind and in front of the scenes until the until the early 80s. Right. So, you know, uh, kind of birth this thing helped bring him into uh into being and even got them to uh you know to the title in 79 right so kind of like if anybody kind of sort of saw it from beginning to you know uh the zenith right shulman was clearly the guy but then this bit this barry ackerley guy sort of a local media magnate from 83 to 2001 and then there's the the Howard Schultz situation, which obviously leads to uh, ultimately to the departure. Any pros and cons or, or distinctions uh, between these uh, these three eras of, of ownership? And I guess either in terms of the players as well and, and the feeling, the familiarity or the familiar, the familialness, I guess, uh, of the team and all that kind of stuff versus some of the others. Because in the background of all this, right, is that the NBA is becoming the big, bad <laughs> you know, monstrous uh, business of the NBA at the same time, right? So, yeah, you know, there are distinct. Like Shulman regretted selling it almost while he was selling it. He he just happened to, uh, as as I kind of put in the book, like he he was he was a Hollywood guy first. He never actually left. You know, he he went to almost every game, but he he kept his houses in L.A. He had invested in a couple different movies that he thought, you know, Ferris Bueller, and he thought it was his time to really shine in Hollywood and that was why he ended up selling it. He didn't think he could, you know, manage both of those things. So that's when he sold it to Ackerley, who didn't do terribly, you know, but it, it just he really kinda he didn't treat the you know some of the hometown guys right. There was that big, you know, issue with um Xavier McDaniel and and, and later on, I mean I'm sorry, Sean Kemp later on and so with contracts and things like that. But you know, they were the stewards of those those teams in, in the nineties and they, they kinda handled some of that poorly. But um but yeah, the uh, you know the, the the when it moved past all of that, and you got to the the finale there of Howard Schultz, um, and then you know, obviously selling it and all that. I mean that when you come into it as it, you know, I can be dispassionate and completely objective, and there's really no other way to look at it than than he was absolutely selling the team to someone who he knew was going to move the team. There's no other way to look at it. I, I think it's a case closed. No matter what he said, no matter what he did, every single thing that was pointing to it was that the team was going, you know, the team was going to be in Oklahoma City, and he knew it. And he had plenty of options and offers, and other people made, you know, bids to him, and he kept pretending as if he was giving it to somebody who he knew uh, was going to steward it and keep it in Seattle when there was zero chance that was ever going to happen. 
Well, but given all the stories that you're hearing from these players that kind of got you onto the story in the first place, I mean, I, I, I'm trying to get a sense of truly how deep the passion and commitment was to this team uh, that would even lead to this kind of situation. Yeah, it's becoming big business. You know, yeah, there's the, the, there is this not-so-insignificant issue, especially as the years pile on and things like luxury suites and, and revenue streams and all that kind of stuff matter more. And a key arena, by contrast, its cozy charm loses a lot of uh, viability, I guess. Yeah, there was they wanted to do so. The, the things that put holes in in that, from the perspective of people who are not that there's defending having the team leave or whatever, but from the theory that it was a business reason, it, it, a couple of those is you know at one point Schultz said you know we could sell every single seat in the key arena and still lose money. That was like his famous quote, and that's why you know, he did his best and all these kind of things. Meanwhile, every player who played for him said he was you know, the worst owner ever. I'm sure you've heard the, the Gary Payne interviews. And, and he even told me that, you know, the guy ran it like he ran us, you know, it was easy to say like, a, you know, like a coffee shop or like a regular business that didn't have an attachment. And, you know, they all say he was just the, the, the worst basically to deal with, uh, didn't really understand the connection the team had and wasn't doing that. And so when Clay Bennett um, bought the team, there was a like best intentions clause that he had to do kind of due diligence to keep the team in the city, at least to kind of put a fake show on it. And of course, uh, one of the things he would talk about is the new arena, the idea for a new arena or renovating the arena. And he put together the single most unworkable, unfeasible plan ever, no on purpose so that the city would have to reject it. And then he could say, Hey, I, you know, I came up with a plan for an arena and you guys rejected it. That's why I'm leaving. Um, you know, that's one angle to it. The other angle is the basketball angle, which is what I actually spent most of my conversation with Kevin Durant about, which is, you know, it's easy to look back and look at, you know, all right, what was going to go on. But at one point in time, you know, the Sonics had, you know, Ray Allen in, in the very, very middle of his prime, really even beginning of his prime, Richard Lewis, who was an all-star, and they just drafted Kevin Durant. You know, that is an unguardable threesome moving towards where the NBA was headed in the late 2000s like that there is no one by year two of Kevin Durant after winning rookie of the year that team's a 55 60 win team and 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 Durant and Ray Allen who I both spoke with both had really like deep regrets of what that could have been what would have that looked like because you can't guard both of them at the same time out from the outside Rashard Lewis was 6'11 and shot well like it might have been a push. There was no one really out west who was going to challenge them yet if they picked that up. So, from a basketball perspective, you know they willingly just threw away that hand. Um, and then obviously immediately, you know, when the draft came out, they knew they were trading um, Ray Allen to the Celtics. So, from a basketball perspective, they threw that away. They made it you know, impossible to stay from an arena perspective. So, the only thing you can point to is you know Clay Bennett was Mr. Oklahoma City anyway. So he he bought the team with a hundred percent you know idea to move it to to Oklahoma City. There was no chance that, that was going to work. And so the second that Schultz decided that he was out, what should have happened was he should have sold it to somebody within Seattle dedicated to making it work there. But he did the opposite. Well, look, Seattle also, as we learned with the uh, the original uh, pilots and the, and and the, the 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 long ugly road for the Mariners and the Kingdom and all that kind of stuff. Has, has always been, at least around the 60s and 70s, reluctant uh, to sort of follow through on, uh, I guess, promised uh, facilities. I mean, it, it, my understanding was that the pilots in 69 
you know, we're only going to play in that uh, that minor league facility for a short period of time, but then the the whole uh, pu- public nature of getting a multi-purpose stadium kind of done just kind of collapsed. Um, and that wasn't ultimately the reason, but it certainly didn't help uh, Seattle for years later to even get uh, even uh, a whiff of possibly getting a baseball or ba- uh, a base a football team, excuse me, Seahawks. Um, but I, I guess this feels to me like this whole ugly episode in the early aughts when when Oklahoma City essentially wound up, if you will, stealing this team. It almost it almost feels like this was truly, you know, an arena driven and economically driven situation where you're you're talking about it wasn't it wasn't for the lack of basketball, right? The hoops was the hoops were pretty good. Yeah, well, what's interesting is it, it all depends on the on what you're like who you're you know advocating for, right? For the fans, you know, they knew for years as soon as the last two years of Schultz having the team, the rumors were you know it was the most open rumor ever that he was trying to sell it and that he was going to sell it likely to this guy Clay Bennett, right? So the minute that happened, the the fans had one foot out the door as sort of a protest for him. So you can't really point to the attendance numbers of the last couple of years, but um, you know. The, to the point that maybe the arena wouldn't have worked or if it was an arena issue, maybe, maybe not. But there was no effort by Schultz to solve that particular problem on his own there. I mean, he had the money. He had the team. Uh, a couple of the guys that I talked to, um, a couple of the NBA guys that I talked to who played there or from there, basically were like, he could have, you know, look at all these owners that have either done financing and done all these things to, and done to keep the team there. And also when he was going to sell it, there were several local ownership groups. A few of them had some of the players who had played there involved in them willing to step up and buy it. And I think if, I think if there's one thing you can point to other than the fact that um, you know, Schultz and players didn't get along, but if the one thing that really, really pisses people off is that there was one person who, if he could have sold it to, was 100% going to take the team to the city he was from. I mean, Clay Bennett was Mr. Oklahoma City. He brought, you know, he brought the Hornets there after Katrina. He helped, you know, the state fairs. He went to Oklahoma. His wife went to Oklahoma. His businesses were in Oklahoma. All his partners were in Oklahoma. There was just no circumstances where his lifelong dream of spending his whole life in one city was going to end up with the team in Seattle, especially because they had just built arena that he helped finance. So, that's what I think pisses people off the most is that Schultz, fine. He had to sell it. If he couldn't make it work, that's fine. But he pretty much sold to the only guy who was dedicated to bringing it somewhere else. So, I, you know, we talked about this with um, uh, with Jason and Adam, I, and I guess it's it's a valid question. And, and I think I, I get a sense maybe where you would sort of look at it. But uh, if there is a villain or, or is it multiple villains in this story, right? Because certainly Schultz is certainly is definitely a candidate. Uh, Bennett certainly, uh, you know, in his the manner in which he found and, and got and then ultimately took the team. But uh, there's also the NBA and in particular, David Stern kind of either looming in the background or the foreground, depending on the week or the month in the court trials. None of this happens if somewhere in the back room, Stern says you're not moving a team out of Seattle. Right. I mean, we all know that he, he was at that point, he still had pretty big stick. And if he felt strongly enough that it was a, a signature city and, you know, come hell or high water, whoever he was going to, you know, whoever Schultz was going to sell that team to, the team was staying there. Bennett would not have bought the team because Bennett's, you know, Bennett, whether you rank the order of the villains, 
Um, the one person who could have sort of done the backroom, you know, the, the, the proverbial smoky backroom deal. Hey, you know, here's what we're thinking. If Stern flat out told, made it known that, look, we're, I'm going to, I'm going to lean on enough owners that they're not going to approve this. It, it probably would not have happened, but unfortunately, um, and that's really where I think they, they, a lot of people felt like he let the city down because he was maybe the only one who could have come out and stopped it. And I think he did the opposite. I, I may be remembering wrong. You may remember, but I think he, he said that like, if it's not viable, you know, some, 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 uh, interview where, you know, he understood that if it's not viable, they have to go, you know, to a city that it was. And, and he was obviously all for the larger NBA and expansion. Um, and, and to the, to the point of the Seattle fans, talking about you know people that you interview and do some you know reading about they actually don't want a team to move there they would they, they kind of take the high road of like we would never do to another city what happened to us we want our own team uh, which is why they kept the sonics and all that kind of stuff you know logo with the team and didn't, and didn't bring it along so yeah i think the, the ranking the villains a case could be made that like you know uh uh Stern might have been Thanos in this regard, right? Like, <laughs> at the end of the day, if he had snapped his fingers, he might have been able to keep the team there. Well, look, I also, I, I also get it. It feels to me like that that uh, Stern was trying to do right by the league. And again, remember, you got to put this against the backdrop of the early two thousands and and how the revenue streams were evolving and, and television and cable and 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 arena economics, right? And it 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 feels to me like he kind of put his weight behind trying to get not only a renovation 3.0 for Key Arena, but also the idea of a brand new facility from scratch, you know, with all the luxury suites and that kind of stuff. And when or because of it not sort of coming to be or not looking like it would happen anytime soon, you know, it almost feels like that political capital that Bennett sort of immediately got by housing the Hornets in a desperate and emergency situation almost feels like, it just it's almost like a favor being called. And, and if I'm stern, I, it looks like it's just such a clean and and uh, incrementally, uh, you know, upside deal, um, despite the fact that Oklahoma City ain't no Seattle when it comes to media market and uh, pizzazz and uh, allure, I guess, as a as a as a locale for travel. Yeah, it's almost, it seems short-sighted looking back. And like you said, there was so many factors going on. I mean, there was no streaming, there was no social media, there was none of that ad revenue. They just started kind of pushing into, you know, China and some of the other places that they were doing. And, you know, Kobe was, you know, the league was in that spot where LeBron wasn't LeBron yet. And, and Kobe was, you know, still Celtics, Lakers, you know, those those years when, especially when, when Real went over there. So the league was in a completely different spot. Um, and you're right. He definitely threw his weight behind the good of the league in terms of the more updated arenas, the better. Um, but the, the the thing that happens with Bennett that's interesting is there were ways that the NBA probably could have done better by both teams, right? Like, you know, you can promise Oklahoma City the next expansion team. You can do all these things. It was just the way it was done so openly. And I think that the thing that was – the thing that really – bugs people the most when they look back on it and when I talk to them is that like Bennett himself. So, 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 so say Schultz is kind of just like a shill and wants to get out of it. And, and maybe he's just a total sap. And, and even if, I mean, he's not that dumb. He obviously can run all these companies and things, but even if let's just say he's so naive and believes Bennett's going to, you know, maybe he's brainwashed himself into believing that Bennett's going to do best by keeping the team there, which I don't believe for one second, but even if that's the case, um, 
Bennett himself went out and said he was going to try to keep the team in Seattle, knowing he had no intention. So, you know, to your point of, you know, Stern calling in a favor, exactly. It was wide open that he was moving the team. So the fact that he even took press conferences and and went out there and said that he was going to do his best job to bring the team, you know, keep the team in Seattle, I think that's, it just feels like such an open lie to the people who care about the team. I think that, that the legacy of it is, is kind of what you said. Like, Stern maybe could have stopped it. Schultz showed the team to somebody who maybe shouldn't have. But at the end of the day, Clay Bennett's at the front and center saying, yeah, yeah, I'm going to keep the team here. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, wait, no, it's not viable. See ya. Well, all right. It's It's been, you know, over just over a decade now uh, since uh, the team left for Oklahoma City. And um, it's an interesting time to have this conversation with you um, and and you having these interviews with these current players and and how much this team meant to them growing up and either as role models or just uh, identity or, or or just the sheer love and, and joy and uh, you know the the sanctity of the sport of basketball in their own backyard. Um, but now we're we're in a time where and I'm not even talking about the pandemic issues, which is a whole other sort of set of a set of issues, but. You've got this uh, NHL franchise coming to town next year, I think it is. I don't know if the timeline's been pushed back. Uh, the largest uh, NHL expansion franchise price tag ever. Um, they've done a yeoman's-like job in terms of uh, branding it and uh, and trying to kind of do it right, so to speak. And and um, Mr. Lywicki and, and his, his team there seem to be uh, methodical, serious, um, uh, almost bending over backwards to to find that sort of uh, minor league uh, uh, heritage that uh, preceded uh, this team in hockey to kind of sort of build or, or reestablish some of those ties. And I think, frankly, now it puts this question that I'm going to ask you, a softball for sure, more into the, the realm of possibility, and that is when and if a new franchise – perhaps maybe with the old Sonics name and logo, comes back to Seattle. It seems almost like the table uh, is, you know, perhaps getting more set for at least a, a more serious consideration of this finally potentially happening. What, what do you think? I think it's, I think it's, a, it's a absolutely going to happen. Um, it'll definitely be the, the Sonics coming back. I think there's a ton of momentum. I know Adam Silver just had a conversation. I think the mayor of Seattle or some some high you know higher up figure in, in Seattle's political world of talking about being open to having one. Uh, the groundswell is there. I don't know that you know. I know the, the 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 NBA has lost a lot of revenue from you know obviously from COVID and and, and some other TV factors. And, you know, an easy way to raise revenue and, and, you know, have owners get some money in their pockets is to sell, you know, sell the rights to a brand new franchise over there. So that's it's, a, it's an easy win to do that. Um, I know I've heard, you know, them and then Vegas coming in together. So two, two, two new teams. But I think it is uh, I think I'd say it's inevitable. I don't know when I think I wouldn't be surprised if in the next, let's say, three years, it's announced that they're getting a new team. And, and maybe by the end of the, the decade, they have a team to play or hopefully sooner than that. Um, I know guys like you know, Isaiah, you know Thomas, and, and Jamal Crawford are like hoping it happens in the next couple of years because they all want to play there. Um, you know, it's funny of all the guys who grew up in that area, the the only one who kind of has the the triple crown of of doing that actually, funny enough, is Detlef Schrempf, right? He played 
Yeah, he transferred over from Germany and played basketball in high school there. Then he played at Washington, and then he spent obviously significant time in the 90s with the Sonics. So he's the only one who has the full suite of experience of playing in high school, college, and pro ball uh, in Seattle, and he's a huge advocate for it. So I think they're coming back. Again, I'm just guessing on the dates and times, but if, if somewhere in the next two, three, four years it was announced for sure, I wouldn't be surprised. Well, look, it's it's also very interesting, and and, and again, the the, the Kraken are, are slated. I don't know if this is still going to happen. I mean, I'm I'm assuming the NHL is going to try uh, their damnedest to make uh, the fall the the debut as originally scheduled for the Kraken. But the here's the highest irony, right? The arena that they're going to be playing in is wait for it, the former Key Arena, now known as Climate Pledge Arena, right? And so the ultimate irony of this, and obviously hugely renovated and completely, you know, almost down to the studs, right? But, but, but this is this is not like you know a, a complete Wizard of Oz scenario when there's a brand new, you know, uh, new modern stadium, and and I mean it will be modern for don't get me wrong, but I'm saying it's it's literally in the same footprint of where the legacy of much of the previous team uh gained its its glory right and a lot of these so you use the term and i I keep borrowing it and and i will keep doing so liberally uh, until i'm told otherwise this through line right the the actual stadium will have i wouldn't call them ghosts but they'll certainly have lots of probably positive vibes and spirits because we're literally talking about the same you know literally the same soil upon which this team got birthed in the late 60s Perhaps. Yeah, and it's just, and that's exactly right. I mean, the guys who who you would talk about being advocates for, guys like Doug Christie, um, you know, they all went. You know, Doug Christie, Jamal Crawford, Dave Robinson, they went to Rainier Beach High School right down the road, right? Like you, you've got these guys who still live there. That I think is the most uh, impressive part of it. You know, Jamal Crawford lives there, Nate Robinson lives there, Isaiah lives out. You know, in, in Seattle, Tacoma, like these guys are still around. You know, and and so when the team does come back. I hope that somehow maybe, I don't know, I know ownership groups are really difficult, but they they give some kind of, um, I don't know, like a board or something to, to all the NBA players uh, who are from the area to kind of advise on getting them back into the community because I just think it'll be great for the city. Well, that, that actually brings up the, the other sort of maybe parallel to this. I wonder if some of these players as they, uh, you know, end their playing careers and, and uh, look towards, uh, you know, either staying in basketball or other business pursuits and stuff. I mean, you're you're mentioning, you know, some of these guys that you interviewed for this uh, for this book. I mean, Jamal Crawford and um, uh, Isaiah Tom. I mean, you know, there's all kinds of uh, there's definitely money there, right? Uh, uh, if they're saving and 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 doing their business deals and and relationships and stuff. A- and I, you wonder if you know uh, this uh, sort of Seattle mafia, if you will, might have some. Uh, uh, you know, genuine connection that either could be uh, part of the ownership group or at least maybe the ambassadors for an ownership group uh, to truly make a return to the NBA for Seattle authentic, uh, heritaged. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm reminded of uh, uh, the North American Soccer League uh, back in the day and, and three of the teams that now uh, – uh, dominate the Pacific Northwest in Major League Soccer, all three of them borrowing, and then by extension, uh, I, I guess sort of uh, uh, bringing into their own nest the histories of those previous teams into the current teams. Um, some of that might be a little artificial with a huge gap in between, but I guess my point is that there's an authenticity there of the current generation, right? 
it would be really, you know, if you're picturing that's kind of the, it would have to be a dream snare, but if you're picturing, like you said, with the Kraken, a well-run, well-thought-out announcement and scenario, you have to believe that when the day comes that they announce, you know, the Sonics are coming back, that you've got Sean Kemp and Gary Payton, you know, front and center talking about it. Perhaps George Carl is there. Then behind them, you've got all the players from Seattle who have been holding it down since they haven't had a team, you know, Jamal and Isaiah and Doug Christie and Nate and all those guys wearing jerseys. Like if they do it right, they will have all the, like you said, all the ambassadors they need to tie it all the way back to the beginning. You know, I'm sure they could get guys like, you know, X-Man there and maybe, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, some of those maybe guys from the seventies are still around and want to come in. But, um, it, to me, there is a, it, uh, there is a very slam dunk way to do this, and it involves all those guys. Well, and look, I'm sorry from the broadcast perspective, it has to uh, uh, has to have uh, Kevin Calabro. Uh, Calabro. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, oh, yeah, exactly. Have him there, do his old school announcement, you know, have Eddie Vedder do a concert. You know what I mean? Like, you, can, you and I, who are not going to be a part of this ownership group, can put together a hell of an introduction for the new team, right? So they should just do that. <laughs> But I, but look, I, I know this sounds like kind of a little dreamy here, but that this, this is in the realm of possibility. I, I, you know, and again, COVID aside, and and a return to some kind of normal, or at least evolved uh, in-person game experience. Uh, you mentioned it before. I mean, Seattle is a gaping hole in the NBA's geography. Uh, which I think is even more important now media-wise than perhaps it was ever before. I Look, we ever forget, right, that uh, there was a time, right, where Seattle and Portland and, oh, yeah, remember the Vancouver Grizzlies, right? That There was a, a Northwest basketball, like, troika there that was kind of fun for those in, in the area, right? Because it was kind of like a true local rivalry. It was good. I think that I think Vancouver was the outlier mainly because the players had just no interest in playing there. That was the big, the big problem there was it was just you just you had too many guys from the East Coast, LA, big cities who were just not interested in spending time in Vancouver, as nice as a city as it is. Um, but yeah, for sure, especially in the '90s, um, you know the, the the most recent times with those teams when you remember the, the you know the Drexler and Terry Porter teams and then you had obviously the you know the teams we've talked about with uh, with the Sonics, it was great. It, it was a, it was a part of the country that had it felt like they had it you know the, the the kind of the four corners of the country. You felt like you had it locked down, um, and there were stars all over the place. You know you could have put an all star team together of just those teams and it you know, would have been good. So. It seems like it's just too, you know, it's just too logical for it not to happen. There's too much money there. The city itself, there's, you know, it, with all the tech and all the Fortune 500 companies there and all the influence they have there, it just makes too much sense to not have a team there soon. And, and I'd love to see it happen. All right. Here's my last question. And, and again, this is two guys not from Seattle. Yeah. <laughs> one who visited for his work and one who lived there for a couple of years for for his work. Uh, but look, I've got it's my show. So what the hell? Um, wh where, um, you know, we ask this question of a lot of people about teams that uh, either uh, relocated or, or uh, somehow went defunct or whatever. Uh, and I guess it's maybe a two part question. Where should the name, the logo, the legacy, the history, the stats and all that stuff of this Sonics uh, existence live and maybe where does it, I guess, where does it and where should it now? I guess the NBA historians would say, well, of course, all the history and the stats belong to Oklahoma city. Cause that's where the team went. But 
I don't think people in Seattle would even. I think logic should prevail. And when there is a team there back in Seattle, you sort of uh, exact the Oklahoma City years, and that becomes the start of their franchise moving forward, wherever that franchise ends up. Um, like almost like the, I think they did it with the Cleveland Browns, right? Like they just picked up the Browns stats with the all time Browns stats, right? I think that's what I would do. Um, it's, it'd be silly not to, first of all, it is going to be the son, the Seattle supersonics. That's going to be the name of the franchise there. Uh, I, if they didn't do that, I think it'd be, you know, sports malpractice. I think that, I think that that was part of the deal was that the team and the logo and the name and the colors and all that stays with the city. And so I think you keep it there. I think you break off 2009 to the future as like an alternate timeline for Oklahoma city. And then year one, uh, just tax right back on after two. So there's, you know, if you're looking at like basketball reference, it just goes, you know, Seattle supersonics all the way up 2008 and then starts again in 2025. Do you think the fans and inclusive of the players and the generation or two that have come since the team and now, you know, uh, dominate the NBA today, do you think they can forgive? I mean, it's, it's, it's one thing to, to forget, but it's quite another thing to forgive. That's where I think what you and I just talked about matters. If Kemp and Peyton and Carl and Detlef and all those guys are front and center and on board, yeah. If somehow they announce this team and it's just some suit and those guys aren't included, then maybe not, right? Yeah, I mean, look, it would seem that that um, even from a business perspective, right, or especially from a business perspective, it would be it's 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 nothing but accretive for the NBA um, to to bring that 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 team that logo that essence that history back and and to a new generation of fans that uh have already uh you know they, they embody this team and then don't and never forgotten it right and it, it's almost sort of perfectly made i you just still there's always that uh, maybe maybe a new franchise and and uh, and greener pastures will uh c- can eliminate uh, the hurt People have been yeah, listen, if I had, you know, $5 billion, someone was, I was heading this thing up after I secured the franchise, my next calls would be to like the top 20, you know, I call Ken Griffey Jr. Like every Seattle icon I would call and get on board and I would make this a grand homecoming as opposed to like a new thing. It's like, you know, the Sonics are back. I would pay these guys to be the ambassadors. I would give them courtside seats with them and a guest from Seattle. Like, I would embrace every part of the return as opposed to trying to start something new. All right. So you and I have a pact then so that when this is announced and the first game, you and I are both going to be there somehow. Some I'm in. Yeah. That uh, works for me. All right. So chance to promote. Let's let's talk about this book. Maybe also talk, talk about the imprint because I think that's important too, as well as your other stuff because this is not the only thing in your life uh, writing-wise. Yeah. No, I um... – I, uh, the books from, uh, so Isaiah Thomas, who you know, went to Washington, played with the, the Celtics and the Kings, and actually is playing for Team USA now in, um, in Puerto Rico for I think the Pan Am Games or whatever uh, specific that is, uh, tournament that is. He is the uh, you know, founder, along with uh, my buddy TJ Regan, of the Slow Grind Media Imprint, and this is the first book from that. And so we hope to do a bunch more. I can't 
reveal which one we're doing next just yet, but we're going to be doing at least uh, two or three more of these. What's, uh, kind what's of, the uh, what's the uh, the zeitgeist of uh, of slow grind as a, as an imprint? Is there any slow grind? You know, Isaiah had that kind of as a mantra for him. Always, you know, last picked in the in in the draft uh, when he got drafted, where it's, you know, it's never come easy for him. It's just kind of always a the slow grind mantra for him is always working hard, just you know, keep putting one foot in front of the other. And so he has a, a an apparel company with that name on it, and so. The next step was um, he has a, a short form documentary on him that's kind of uh, done, you know, two or three times a year by TJ. That's called you know, Book of Isaiah, and so this is kind of an out, an outpouring of that or an extension of that, I should say. Uh, so that's where the the slow grind publications came from is from the slow grind media arm. So we started our own book imprint to do these kind of books, kind of the stories in basketball that need to be told. Uh, that combine that with uh, you know Isaiah's passions, you know. Seattle, the Sonics, scoring some other players and things in the NBA that we're exploring for our next, our next project, and then the books, yeah, Hoops Heist that's out. It was, um, you know, officially endorsed by a lot of the guys that we talked to: Kevin Durant, you know, Gary Payton, Jason Terry, um, a lot of those guys who were involved with it. We talked to almost every big name Seattle basketball player we could get a hold of. In there, the book is really two parts. Part one is like the franchise, and it's the history of the franchise from before. There was a franchise all the way to it leaving, and then part two is a legacy where it's talking a chapter on a lot of the guys that are in the book and what the team meant to them and how it affected their pro basketball lives. So that's the book. Yeah, head out and get it. If you do go out and get it, uh, tag me as a screenshot. Are you holding the book on social media, Twitter and Instagram, at John underscore Finkel? And uh, I have a bunch of cool book plates signed for anybody who, who, who buys a book. And uh, me and Isaiah have other things going on as well for, for giveaways as well. So, so make sure you uh, pick it up at wherever, Amazon or Slow Grind or wherever you buy books. All right, Seattle Hoops fans, let's uh, let's try to figure out ways to make this thing happen, shall we? I think it's uh, way overdue. It's time for Seattle to come back, and uh, uh, all is forgiven. Let's get them back. Uh, the Sonics uh, with the brand name, all the history. Let's bring them back to Seattle. I think uh, it's it's high time that occurs, and uh, whatever we all can do to sort of make that happen, uh, we are all for it for sure. All right, let's uh, make sure that you. Uh, Learn more about John. So John Finkel's website is John Finkel. That's J-O-N Finkel, F-I-N-K-E-L, johnfinkel.com. That's where you can find out about all of his uh, books. He's got a great book on the uh, the life and times of Mean Joe Green. Um, uh, Obviously, Hoops Heist, uh, some really great stuff there. Uh, Blogs and uh, newsletters and all that kind of stuff and and other stuff to come. Uh, uh, Found for you there at johnfinkel.com. You can follow John. Uh, on both Instagram and Twitter at John, J-O-N underscore Finkel, F-I-N-K-E-L, at John underscore Finkel, uh, both on Twitter and on Instagram. And the book, again, is Hoops Heist, Seattle, the Sonics, and how a stolen team's legacy gave rise to the NBA's secret empire. And again, it is uh, published by the Isaiah Thomas-backed uh, imprint known as Slow Grind Media, the first of, uh, as you heard uh, John mention, many books to come and other uh, kinds of media to come. And it's a great way to, I think, get this imprint off the ground. Uh, it is available wherever fine books are found. Uh, of course, you can find a link to it, uh, and it takes you to Amazon from our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search up this episode, uh, number 203, with John Finkel. 
uh, and you'll be whisked away to Amazon to uh, purchase it and get it uh, delivered probably within a day or so if you're an Amazon Prime member. I believe you can also get it in Kindle form, too. Sure, you can start reading it right away. Why not? Uh, but also, if you uh, want to order it directly uh, from uh, John, I believe you can do that, too, from his website. Uh, and uh, by doing so, you can get uh, a, a nameplate uh, addressed to you uh, in thanks for uh, buying the book uh, directly from uh, John and from uh, Slow Grind Media as well. Uh, and uh, if you have a problem, just uh, email us or whatever. But uh, whatever you do, get, get a copy of this book. Uh, it's it's a great history as well as a great uh, underlying legacy uh, as told, frankly, through uh, the various uh, players in the NBA who uh, found themselves uh, coming from the Seattle area and were influenced heavily by the Sonics' presence. And uh, you could make the argument to uh, have a vested interest, at least psychically. Uh, if not potentially financially, in seeing Seattle get an NBA franchise again and uh, maybe even in particular named the Sonics at that. We uh, again, we're uh, we're big boosters of that concept. And uh, let's uh, let's all uh, try to make that happen, shall we? Uh, let's see if you want to follow us and all of our various escapades on this little show our 200 plus episodes. All of them can be found, of course, for your streaming and downloading pleasure at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Uh, of course, you can uh, get uh, the show wherever you get podcasts. Uh, it's uh, generally available whatever device or uh, feed system that you use. Just be sure that uh, not only that you subscribe, but if you can rate and review the show, especially on Amazon or uh, Apple or, or uh, Android or, or Google, whatever you're doing, uh, we always uh, love the uh, the five-star reviews. And, uh, of course, that helps the algorithms and the recommendation engines uh, for uh, others to find the show as well. We appreciate that extremely uh, much. I guess if I could say that, that makes sense. And uh, let's see, if you want to send us email, you can do that, of course. We're at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Yes, we're on social as well. Uh, Twitter is probably our most active. Uh, you'll find us at goodseatsstill. Uh, we post once a day or so on Instagram. That's at goodseatsstillavailable. Uh, we also publish fairly regularly on our Facebook page. Just search up Good Seats Still Available. You'll find us there as well. And uh, yes, we've got a newsletter as well. We send out about a day or so ahead of when we drop each episode, give people a little bit of advanced look or listen uh, to what the show is going to be this week or this coming week. And uh, just find the link for that to subscribe to that on our website as well. Once again, as always, our pal, Dr. Jerry Payne putting all of our collective pieces together. Thank you, kind sir, he says, uh, for twiddling the knobs and turning the dials this week. Uh, and we appreciate that as always, uh, fine sir. Thank you. And uh, we also appreciate your listenership. Uh, stay safe, stay warm, stay healthy, stay sane. Hope we uh, were able to distract you a little bit this week. And uh, kudos to uh, all of you for uh, hanging in there. And we'll see you next week. Thanks very much, everybody. Bye-bye. Welcome to the game, ladies and gentlemen, shout the name, Seattle Supersonics, our basketball bionic, and Gary Payton was on, bounce pass the foot to Sean, and the crowd sing along, Supersonics, oh yeah, Supersonics.
Just a regular team, your Seattle Supersonics. 